story you are about to hear is true. Attention, all troops. I grew up in the great state of New Jersey. This meant that every summer, my family would take a trip down to the Jersey Shore. I'm not sure if people still do that nowadays, but back in the 80s, this is all you did. Every summer, usually a weekend, maybe a week, depending on your family schedule, you would head down to the Jersey Shore. My family preferred Point Pleasant. One year we rented a small cottage for a week down there. That was the summer that Pac-Man hit really big on American soil. Now I was a big arcade nut already at that point. Space Invaders, Pinball, at the Jersey Shore, Skee-Ball, I loved them all. But there was this new game, Pac-Man, and there would be a crowd around it. Multiple machines, just huge crowds. I got a dollar's worth of quarters and waited in line. I played it, and I was completely hooked. It's hard to relate the feeling of playing Pac-Man for the first time when we live in such an age of complex video games. But up until that point, it seems that everything had been something about Space Invaders or shooting. Perhaps they had some sports stuff based on Pong. But this was a completely different type of game. And from the huge crowds at each machine, it was obvious that I was not the only one who thought that. I burned through that first dollar really quick, and I ran home to go get another one. Had to walk like three blocks. That's right, I would only get a dollar at a time, and I had to basically beg for that dollar. We were expected to actually hang out on the beach, and swim, and things like that. So my family, although would let me play video games, wouldn't give me too much money. My grandmother was with me on this trip, and she gave me two dollars. I ran back, and I watched people play as I moved up. I kind of hung out on the side. I was that annoying kid who's sort of almost grabbing the side of the machine. You get the little dirty looks from the guy playing. But I started to notice that people were playing in a certain way. They had sort of patterns down. This is amazing. The game hadn't been out that long. I didn't understand how they could figure this out that quick. So I burned through those two dollars and didn't get any more money for probably two days. And we were on the boardwalk in one of those little tchotchke stores where they sell stressed out Pepsi bottles and t-shirts, sand dollars, and hermit crabs. And I saw a book that said how to play Pac-Man. I couldn't believe that there would be a book about how to play Pac-Man. I went over and started reading it. I, there was like all this information about patterns and the way the ghosts act. I had no idea that a game could have that much depth to it. My family decided to move down and go to the beach. I stayed in that store and probably for three and a half hours read that book, cover to cover. Just sat there reading it. It was more of a booklet. I was pretty sure I was going to become a Pac-Man champion now that I had read the book. So the next morning, I begged for money, managed to get a quarter or two from my sisters, a dollar from my mother, a dollar from my grandmother, and I ran up to play Pac-Man. I did a whole lot better, and by the end of the week, I actually got to one of the keyboards, which just about blew my mind and actually seemed to impress some of the people in the arcade. At the end of the week, we went home, and I had to go without Pac-Man for a while. Then the candy store in my town decided to start carrying video games, and they got a Pac-Man, and all my money went into Pac-Man for the next year. When Pac-Man was finally released on Atari, it became a household phenomenon. Not just me playing, my mother's, my sister, even my grandmother got in on the act. Pac-Man is one of those games that transcends generations. The concept of a maze is so simple, so accessible, and yet so neutral that everybody can get into it. And I remember having to fight my mother for my Atari controller on what was not the greatest port. 
but a port that I could play for just hours at a time. I think I could sit there and play six, seven hours of Atari Pac-Man and not lose a life. On today's show, we're going to talk about the phenomenon that was Pac-Man. Its initial release in Japan, how it came to America, how it seeped into popular culture, its ports, and we'll throw in a few surprises. So now, without further ado, let's start the show. The story of Pac-Man begins in 1977, when a talented young man named Toru Iwatani took a job at Namco Limited. Namco at the time was a Tokyo-based amusement manufacturer, and they made projection games, shooters, like those light gun games that you would see in arcades. At the time, he was only 22 and had no formal training in video games, computers. Iwatani impressed his bosses so much that they hired him on the spot and said that they would find a place for him at the company. Iwatani was really interested in making pinball machines, but Namco wasn't interested in getting into the pinball business. What they were interested in doing is getting in on the brand new video game craze. So Iwatani was teamed with a programmer, a graphic artist, and a music composer to make games. This would become a sort of standard procedure for video game design in the future, where Iwatani is the game systems designer, and everyone else helps to try to realize his vision. In 1978, his first game, GB, was introduced, and this was sort of a breakout ripoff, but had a kind of pinball sort of feel to it. So maybe it was a concession they made to him at the time, since he was so interested in pinball. So paddle games like Breakout and Pong were pretty cool, and they were doing real well. But a new genre was on the horizon, and it would take Japan by storm. And this was, of course, Tato's Space Invaders. We'll return after these messages. Remember, folks, your kids won't know a thing about Atari or the Smurfs, unless you educate them. So have them listen to the Retroist Podcast weekly at Retroist.com. You'll be glad you did. And now, back to the show. Space Invaders came out in 1978 and changed the arcade market immediately. We shifted from shooter games with you know, light guns to these paddle games, things that were a ripoff of Pong, to space-themed games. And Namco, of course, wanted to get in on that. And they asked Toru to immediately start on a clone of Space Invaders. One of the reasons, besides the fact that he was brilliant, that Toru was great, was that at the time he was thinking that, of course, Space Invaders was a hit and they'd probably make money creating a Space Invaders clone, but that that was just a trend and that maybe he had to think what would be the next great thing. And he was thinking that he wanted to create a game that didn't focus on violence or shooting. Instead, he wanted to come up with a game that would appeal to both male and female audiences. I guess the stereotype at the time being that women didn't want to play violent games. 
which we all know is not true nowadays, which is why we live in the greatest age ever. So Toru started to think about what kind of game he could make. And he thought back to his childhood, to this Japanese children's story about a creature that could protect children from monsters by eating them. One of the things that Iwatani did when he would come up with game designs is he would try to use words that could aid him in his design, something to inspire. And what eventually he came up with was the Japanese word for mouth, which was a square shaped for its kanji symbol. And he thought this would provide the inspiration for the main character. Later it would be rounded off. Now there's a big legend that says that the inspiration for Pac-Man came when he was eating pizza and pulled a slice out and it looked like Pac-Man. This was not true. According to Iwatani, and these are in his own words, well, it's half true. In Japanese, the character for mouth is a square shape. It's not circular like the pizza, but I decided to round it out. There was the temptation to make the Pac-Man shape less simple. While I was designing this game, someone suggested we add eyes, but we eventually discarded the idea because once we added eyes, we would want to add glasses and maybe a mustache. There would just be no end to it. Food is the other part of the basic concept. In my initial design, I had put the player in the midst of food all over the screen. As I thought about it, I realized the player wouldn't know exactly what to do. The purpose of the game would be obscure. So I created a maze and put the food in it. Then whoever played the game would have some structure by moving through the maze. The Japanese have a slang word, paku paku, they use to describe the motion of the mouth opening and closing while one eats. The name Puckman came from that word. So although food inspired him, and maybe pizza was one of those foods he was thinking about while creating it, the specificity of pizza being the inspiration for the Pac-Man shape is just wrong. Although, I would love to have seen Pac-Man with a mustache and glasses. I think that would have been really happening. Iwatani rounded out the design of the game by including four ghosts in the game. He thought that the ghosts would add an interesting element of tension, and instead of attacking constantly, they would come at you in waves, and that was accomplished by playing with the behavior of the ghosts, which actually gave them really unique personalities. So he wanted the ghosts to come at you, but he thought, well, can you actually ever turn the table on the ghosts? And he did that by including the power pellets in the maze that turned the ghosts blue. These would come to be known as energizers. And this, he thought, worked really well with his concept of bringing this from a children's story, because in the stories he had heard, there was a life force in those stories that allowed the creature to gobble up the monsters. And on the original arcade game, they're actually still called monsters. They become ghosts later on. So the whole time that Iwatani is working on the design for Pac-Man, he's still building up his game design skills, working on two successors to GB. They were sort of still pinball inspired, but they would have stronger gameplay and better visual design. So he's getting more skilled. Those games were Bombi and QDQ. Great names. So Namco decided that Puckman, as the game would be known, sounded like a good idea, and assigned a programmer, hardware engineer, cabinet designer, and musical composer to the game. Development of it got underway in 1979. While this was going on, Namco had been working on a Space Invaders clone and came up with a technological breakthrough for the company. Their clone was able to use true RGB display instead of the monochrome monitors with colored cellophane tape that had been used before. Because of this breakthrough, Iwatani could now use color in his game design. In his mind, he thought that he could appeal to female audiences by picking colors that he thought would appeal to women. So the ghosts were given pastel shades for the bodies and large, expressive blue eyes. The maze itself would be dark blue, and Puckman would be a strong yellow. 
so that over the next year, Puckman continued to evolve, and a lot of work was put into developing the behavior of the ghosts. As time went on, these ghosts became even more and more unique, so much so that they were given names of their own. So instead of just having the hero, Puckman, have a name, even his villains had names. And, of course, the names that we came to know them in America were Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde. If you're not familiar enough with Pac-Man, the red guy is Blinky, Pinky is obviously the pink one, the blue ghost is Inky, and the orange ghost is Clyde. They all had different behavior, and the different behaviors associated with them are Blinky is the chaser, Pinky is an ambusher, Inky kind of moves away from you, and Clyde just is random. It took about 17 months to create Puckman, the longest ever for a video game at that point. And on May 22nd, 1980, it was released to arcades in Japan. It did okay, but it wasn't a huge hit. In fact, the Space Invader clone that Namco had been working on was initially much more popular. And if you haven't guessed it by now, the name of that clone was Galaxian. So how did Puckman morph into Pac-Man and become one of the biggest games of all time? Well, they sent it to America. The company Midway in America was looking at Japanese games to bring over that they thought would be big hits. And the two games that they picked were Puckman and Galaxian. Of course, when they brought Puckman over, they changed a couple of things. They changed the cabinet. The original Puckman cabinet was white. They changed it to yellow. They also changed the artwork on it from this multicolored painted cabinet on the side and this was more of a white and blue theme to the standard yellow with the blue and yellow ghost on the side and the pac-man and of course they did this because those would be cheaper to manufacture over and over again now the big change was the name puckman which they changed to pac-man and i think a lot of you realize why they did this they were concerned that vandals would come into the arcade and change the P to an F, and they wanted to avoid that sort of hilarious vandalism. In October of 1980, Pac-Man, as well as Galaxian, hit American arcades for the first time. Now, Galaxian was a hit. Galaxian was very popular, but there was a lot of video games coming out in America that were similar to Space Invaders, and a new game called Defender had just come out as well, and Defender was a huge hit. So Galaxian kind of got buried, and that was the expected hit. Pac-Man comes onto the scene, and it's not like any game anyone had seen before. It's bright, it's colorful, and Iwatani was right. For the first time, women found a game that they kind of liked, and parents saw Pac-Man, and it was not violent and not threatening, and they thought, well, I would actually let my kids play this game. To say Pac-Man was a hit would be an understatement. It was a phenomenon. In the first year alone, it sold over 100,000 machines. One of the things everybody was talking about at the time is how easy it was to play. And it was. You can get through the first level, maybe your first time playing it. But to really master Pac-Man took a long time. Hence the easy-to-learn, difficult-to-master tagline that everybody was throwing around. By 1982, Pac-Man merchandise was everywhere. T-shirts, cereal boxes, comic books... Saturday morning cartoons, and of course, the hit song, which reached number 9 on the U.S. Billboard charts, Pac-Man Fever. Along with all the merchandise that came out, books and magazines started to feature strategies on how to play the game, which I talked about earlier in the podcast during my story. This was the first time that video game strategy guides were released. And the strategy for Pac-Man isn't that difficult to understand, 
Although, as they say, it's difficult to master. At the very basic, what you have to know is the behavior of the ghosts. The ghosts have three modes of behavior that they can use during gameplay. They can chase, they can scatter, and they can be frightened. In chase mode, a ghost is just going after and trying to capture Pac-Man by hunting them down using their own unique behavior. Blinky is very aggressive and will chase Pac-Man down throughout the whole maze. Pinky tries to cut you off and get in front of you. Inky is very unpredictable and will do random and multiple things. And Clyde has a tendency to kind of be on the opposite side of the maze that you're on. And when they're in chase mode, they will use their particular method to get to you. When a ghost goes into scatter mode, they give up the chase for just a few seconds and head for their respective corners. And finally, there's frightened mode, which is what the ghost enters whenever Pac-Man eats one of the energizers located in the corners of the screen. In the early levels of the game, they'll turn darker blue and wander the maze for a few seconds. So that's some of the behavior you need to learn to deal with the ghosts. But the game itself is pretty simple, and the scoring is equally simple. The game is a maze, obviously, with 244 dots. The 240 dots, which are the small dots, are worth 10 points each. And there's four large flashing dots, which are known as energizers, which are worth 50 points each. Which means that as a very base, for each maze, you can get 2,600 points. But there is a way to increase your score for each maze. And the first way is by eating ghosts. So what you have to do is figure out the behavior of ghosts, kind of round them up. Then you eat one of the energizers. And then as you eat the ghosts, each one grows in value. So the first ghost is worth 200 points. The second ghost 400, 800, and 1600. So if all four ghosts can be captured on each level, after each energizer is eaten, you could get an additional 1,200 points for each board. This isn't very difficult on the first few levels, but as the game moves on, it's impossible. And by level 19, the ghosts stop turning blue altogether and cannot be eaten for additional points. Now, there is another way to get extra points, and that is by eating what was referred to as bonus symbols by the game designer, but are more commonly known as fruit. The first fruit appears after you have eaten 70 dots. The second one appears after 170 dots are cleared. And each fruit is worth anywhere from 100 to 5,000 points, depending on what level you're currently playing on. Now, when a fruit appears, it might seem random how long it stays on, but it is usually on screen somewhere between 9 and 10 seconds. Now I know there are people who know very specifically how long that is, but I don't think as a casual player it's that important. The first fruit in the game is the cherry, and obviously the last fruit or symbol is a key, and the key continues starting at level 13 and continuing on until the game ends. And although the game was made to go on forever, it eventually does end in something called a split screen, sort of like the Donkey Kong kill screen. See, there's a bug in the routine that draws the fruit on the game, and once you reach the 256th level, it becomes a garbled mess of text and symbols, and it renders the game almost impossible to play. See, the problem is, is that it's actually the fruit that are drawn on the bottom, and normally no more than seven fruits can be displayed at any one time. But when the internal level counter, stored in a single byte, reaches 255, the subroutine erroneously causes the value to roll over to zero before drawing the fruit. This causes the routine to attempt to draw 256 fruits, which corrupts the bottom of the screen and the whole right half of the maze with random symbols. Now some people have modified the game to make this go away, so that you can actually play the game forever. But it's interesting because it offers an end game. It's bad, but in a lot of ways it's good, because you have a metric by which you can gauge how good you are at a game. Now, Pac-Man 
and the ghost can move freely through this right side of the maze, but no one has ever been able to get through this maze in any real way that has been documented. So for all intents and purposes, the 256th level of Pac-Man is the Pac-Man kill screen. Okay, you're getting up to your 255th level, and you need to get your maximum score. To do that, you have to eat every dot, every energizer, every fruit, every monster, without losing a single life. The highest score, of course, was by Billy Mitchell, who is famous as the villain in King of Kong. Now get this, Billy got a score of 3,333,360 points in six hours. Say what you want about the guy, but he really knows how to play video games. There's a funny little story that Ronald Reagan in 1982 sent a boy named Jeffrey Yee a letter congratulating him as holding the world record at Pac-Man with a score of 6,131,940 points. Now that score would only be possible if you got past the split screen, and that has never been verified, and the Jeffrey Yee score is largely considered a hoax. In 1999, Billy Mitchell said that if anyone could provably pass through the split screen level before January 1st, 2000, he would reward them with a $100,000 reward. Of course, since nobody could do this, this prize went unclaimed. Pac-Man was a huge hit in arcades, but it also was a huge hit for home gamers, and it is one of the few games that has been in constant publication for over two decades. Starting in the 1980s, it has been in almost every computer and console manufactured for gameplay. This includes the Apple II series, the Atari 5200, the Atari 8-bit computers, IBM's personal computers, Intellivision, Commodore 64, the NES, Game Boy, Sega Game Gear, and of course the Xbox 360. Probably the most famous port of all was the port made by Todd Fry for the Atari 2600 in 1982. This was the first port of the arcade game, and although it was a huge seller, it sold 7 million units, and at the time Atari had 10 million users. They manufactured 12 million cartridges with the expectation that it would sell larger, and so they were left with an inventory of 5 million cartridges, which was a net loss for Atari, and is considered one of the contributing factors to the American video game crash of 1983. It was the second largest unsold inventory of video games. Of course, first was E.T. the Extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600. Pac-Man was a big success which of course would lead to sequels and spin-offs. The problem is is that those sequels and spin-offs weren't coming from Namco. Midway took it upon themselves to start manufacturing their own sequels. So there was this hack of the original Pac-Man by the General Computer Corporation to a game called Crazy Auto, which was sold to Midway without Namco's permission. And with a couple of improvements, Crazy Auto was turned into Ms. Pac-Man. Ms. Pac-Man is amazing sequel to Pac-Man, and in many ways much better. It's got better screens, the differences in the maze, the colors. It's just really strong. This created a rift between Midway and Namco, and they went to court. Namco sued Midway for exceeding their license. Eventually they struck a deal where Namco would officially license Ms. Pac-Man as a sequel to Pac-Man. Following Miss Pac-Man, Midway released several unauthorized spin-offs. You figured they would learn. They released Pac-Man Plus, Junior Pac-Man, 
Baby Pac-Man, and of course Professor Pac-Man. This resulted in Namco severing business relations with Midway. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl with the top five Pac-Man arcade game spin-offs of all time. Number five, Professor Pac-Man. This Pac-Man quiz game challenged players to answer questions before Pac-Man ate all of the dots. This game is very rare. Only 400 units were manufactured, and 300 of those were returned to the manufacturer. Number four, Super Pac-Man. In this radically different version of Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man must capture keys to open doors so that he can eat fruit. This game also introduced the Super Power Pellet that turned Pac-Man into the very huge Super Pac-Man. Number three, Baby Pac-Man. This difficult-to-play pinball video game hybrid forces the player to earn their energizers by playing pinball. Number two, Pac-Man and Pal. This rare 1983 Japanese import actually gave Pac-Man a green ghost buddy named Pal who helps him clear each level. And the number one Pac-Man arcade game spin-off is Ms. Pac-Man. This game popped a bow on the original pack and improved the gameplay and graphics, making it not only a strong symbol for women's lib, but a better game than the original. And there you have it, the retroist top five Pac-Man arcade game spin-offs of all time. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. Now, it took a while before a true sequel was made for Pac-Man. We're talking 2007 before, I would say, a real true sequel that is worthy of the original came out. And that was Pac-Man Championship Edition for the Xbox Live Arcade. It was actually Iwatani who worked on it and created basically a remake of Pac-Man that is fast, quick, colorful, and lives up to the legacy of this great game. Pac-Man broke out of the video game world and onto televisions with the Pac-Man Saturday Morning Cartoon which aired on September 25th, 1982, and ran in one form or another until September 1st, 1984. Originally, it was part of the Pac-Man Little Rascals Richie Rich Show lineup, which ran from September 25th, 1982 to September 3rd, 1983. And then the next season, it was joined up with one of my favorite shows, Rubik the Amazing Cube, for the Pac-Man Rubik the Amazing Cube Hour. And that ran from September 10th, 1983 to September 1st, 1984. After its initial run, the show disappeared, but eventually would reemerge on the USA Cartoon Express in the 80s, and then finally came back onto television in modern times on Boomerang in 2005. You can actually see this series currently on the Xbox Live Marketplace for 160 points per episode, although there's a lot of these episodes on YouTube if you want to save yourself some points. The show revolved around Pac-Man, who was voiced by Peter Engels, and his wife, Mrs. Pepper Pac-Man, which is her full name. She was voiced by Barbara Minkus, and they had a child, Pac-Baby, who was voiced by Russie Taylor. They also had two pets called Chomp Chomp the Dog, which was voiced by Frank Welker, the great Frank Welker, and Sourpuss the Cat, who was voiced by Peter Cullen. The family, of course, lived in Pac-Land, which is a very spheroid place, and the whole time there's an 
an ongoing battle between the Pack family and their enemies, the ghost monsters, Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and Clyde, and an additional ghost, Sue. Now, these ghosts work for a mysterious figure called Mesmeron, who was voiced by Alan Lurie, who, although he looked sort of like Darth Vader, acted a lot like Gargamel. His whole purpose in life was to control the source of power pellets, which are the primary food and power source for Packland. The power pellets also act as the deus ex machina for each episode. So, Ghost got you down, all you need to do is get one of those power pellets in your mouth, and that is the solution. If you could only watch one Pac-Man cartoon, you should definitely get Christmas Comes to Pac-Land. In it, Pac-Man must save Christmas, and specifically Santa Claus, who has crash-landed into Pac-Land after his reindeer were startled by the floating eyes of the ghost monsters, which of course had been just munched by Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, and Baby Pac. In my household, it is a Christmas tradition. Thankfully, due to Namco's re-release of Pac-Man on home consoles and in newly released arcade machines, Pac-Man has never faded from our memory. In fact, his likeness has been licensed on over 400 products, and he is probably still the most recognized video game character in America. And thanks to the efforts of Iwatani on the Championship Edition release and its popularity on the Xbox 360, Pac-Man is going to be around for a long time to come. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You could follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. And if you'd like to be my friend, you could drop by Facebook at facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks to Metagirl and the Top 5 list. If you have an idea for the top five list, email it to Metagirl at metagirl at retroist.com. If you have an idea for the show, email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. Eat the key. Eat the key. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.